The Guardian. Hello, I'm Lucy Siegel and this is Environment Weekly. On this week's show, coming to a community near you, energy from waste facilities. But are these just incinerators by another name? We talk to communities affected and the vociferous not-in-my-backyarders. We hear from eight streets from eight different cities who are competing to be the greenest address in Britain. And we visit the UK's first fully-fledged ethical retail shop. Will it offer genuine solutions to environmental problems or just the opportunity to buy more stuff? Discuss. This is Environment Weekly. This week we're joined by The Guardian's environment correspondent David Adam and Rob Holdway, corporate environmental advisor, who has also done time on landfill, appearing in Channel 4's Dumped series last summer. Hello to you both. Hello, Lucy. And a quick question for you both. Are you with Delia Smith in her attack on organic food? She says she doesn't do organic and she understands why people buy battery chickens. David, are you with Delia on this? I don't think I'm with her on a, as a complete attack. I, I do have some issues with the organic movement and the way it's presented as sort of shorthand for everything eco-friendly. I think it is a lifestyle choice and I can see her point that not everyone can afford it. Um, on the chickens, again, you know, it makes me very uncomfortable the way these chickens are battery farmed, but it is quite difficult to say to people you have to buy one that's three or four pounds more expensive. So I think that's all she was trying to point out. Organic food, yes, undoubtedly, you know, lower pesticides, you could argue it's good for the environment on a, on a reasonably small scale. Um, most of the food experts that I talked to say you couldn't do it on a, on a large scale, you couldn't feed everyone, and therefore it will continue to be for a relatively privileged few. And I think with, with GM, again, the two issues are conflated. It, there was never in my mind any question it was unsafe to eat but you know there are genuine concerns about its environmental impact and so I think if we talk about organic talk about GM you just need to unpick it a little bit and and say exactly what aspects are you talking about and Delia I think her attack if you like was on the the cost and the expense and saying that everyone can't afford to to choose it. Do you think Delia's just trying to grab a bit of attention Rob? Well it's very good to take the contrarian view to give yourself a position in the market because she's been pretty much squeezed out hasn't she by three dominant males so fair play to her but the reality is and most people can't afford organic food. That is a reality. A lot of people can't afford the extra price. But I think the reality is in the UK, if we're going to continue farming here, we have to increase the quality and the, the, the value of what we're farming in the UK and import like we do a lot of other products, import the rest of the stuff. So I think organic is more inevitable. The more organic we produce, the lower the price should come. And I think it's, it is better for the health. It's certainly better for the environment because of the petroleum derived pesticides and herbicides associated with uh, you know mass yield crops. They're obviously worse for the environment. So I'm a great fan of organic food. It tastes better. It's more natural. And yes, it is more expensive, but I think that's a better option. Well, let's have a look at what's been happening in the environment news this week. UN says shipping emissions grossly underestimated. Euractive.com. According to a leaked UN document, annual emissions from the world's merchant fleet have already reached 1.12 billion tonnes of CO2, or nearly 4.5% of all global emissions of the main greenhouse gas. Shipping news is not good. David, does this worry you? I think it should worry all of us. I think this is an awful lot more than we thought when it came to shipping. Shipping is not included in any in any of the international agreements. At the moment, there is no mechanism to control it. I think it's also very, very difficult to see how you could do anything about this. The way the economy is at the moment, we move loads of stuff around the world. Most of that is, is done in ships. Some of the organic food that we talked about probably comes in ships. So when people talk about a low-carbon economy and the government talks about, oh, we, we all need to do more, we all need to do our bit, this is a huge elephant in the room. 
because it's all very well everyone doing their bit, but there's huge amounts of CO2 that are off the balance sheet at the moment, and shipping is, is now being exposed as one of the largest. So do you think that it should be brought into the new climate change bill or law? Oh, undoubtedly along with aviation. It makes no sense at all to be focusing on parts of the CO2 that we know about and ignoring these huge contributions that we're not going to do anything about and the projections are that it's going to get even bigger and even worse. And Rob, shipping has always sort of been pushed forward as the ecologically benign sister of aviation. So, you know, freighting, air freighting stuff has always had the bad press. Do you think this report now reverses that? I think there's a danger that we start to focus on shipping and then forget about the flying stuff around the world. There's no doubt that oceanic freight and moving stuff around by ships is much more environmentally efficient than flying stuff. It's just the scale and the volume significantly more, hence you get attributed CO2 emissions with it. I think there needs to be a benchmark standard in shipping. I'm not an expert in this area, but clearly, how efficient are these ships? Has every opportunity been taken to make the ships as efficient as possible? And I think it's a great step. We've actually accounted. We've got a baseline CO2 figure for shipping. Now we ought to look at the way these ships are designed and made and the way they operate and see if we can reduce those emissions. But for some people, this is a great way of getting the airlines off the hook, I think. And I think that's the danger of it. This is really a story about globalisation, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're talking about we buy more stuff, we want more stuff. Increasingly, it's made in China. It's better to have it imported by ship than it is by plane but we're demanding more stuff all our electronic gadgets having a shorter life cycle etc so this is driving demand for these things to be shipped around the world so we as consumers are driving this demand in the first place i'm just pleased they've accounted for it at least we've got a baseline figure now and that gives the ipvc and all the others uh, a case for moving forward and trying to get some standards within the shipping industry insurance fears for new homes on floodplains the daily telegraph According to the Association of British Insurers, the ABI, one million new homes could be uninsurable. Now, why do we have our heads in the sand when it comes to flooding? Why do we continue to build on floodplains? Rob? I've absolutely no idea why anybody would want to commission new houses and let alone move into them on a floodplain. But they keep doing it. Well, uh, well, I mean, that's down to the local planning, the environment agency and all the other uh, bodies advising these people. It's complete insanity. A floodplain is, by definition, there in order for the river to flood. That's what that's its sole function, to, to build houses on. It's completely insane. And I just think this verges on insanity that we're doing this. So it's down to the local planning and, and, and the regional government to stop this and, and the environment agency to give good advice and stop planning applications going through that are built on flood. A lot of the people that were affected in the summer in, say, Tewkesbury, they've now moved back into their houses. It does seem, David, that we have this kind of inability to understand that flooding is something that is going to affect us. It's because it's it's a high-impact, low-frequency event, isn't it? So it doesn't happen very often, and when it does, we all shake our heads and say, why is this happening? But if you were to say to people it won't happen for another 30 years, they'd probably say, OK, I'll probably take the chance. And the, the flooding in the summer was down to heavy rain, so there's not an awful lot you can do about that in, in some places. Also in the news recently is the thorny issue of waste and what to do with it. The waste giants appear to have hit on a not very novel means of dealing with the excesses of consumption, burning it. The new incineration facilities, however, have been restyled as energy from waste systems that can use some of the heat produced to generate electricity. The waste industry claims this is a source of renewable energy and that new generation incinerators are clean. But as incinerators pop up in UK communities, residents don't seem to be appeased. Friends of the Earth has been organising campaign groups focusing on the health dangers and the extraordinary cost to the nation. But with nearly 30 more incinerators planned for the UK, is anybody listening? 
I spoke to Andy Carr, a very concerned parent from Capel in Surrey and part of the campaign against a proposed new generation incinerator. I asked him to tell us about the plans he's fighting. In May or June, there will be a um, judgment made locally on what's actually going to happen. And we're actually at the stage where we have to really oppose this proposed polluting incinerator as, as hard as we can. Is it an energy from waste facility? Yes, it is. But we call it an incinerator because that's what it really is. So you think the energy from waste tag is just rebranding? Absolutely. The actual amount of energy that comes out of what gets burned is very, very little indeed. And of course, these incinerators have to be so remote that nobody's going to actually benefit from it apart from the site itself. What's motivating your concern? What are your real fears about this uh, incinerator? The real worry I have is we have a number of neighbours who are, for instance, dairy farmers whose herds and ground will be poisoned beyond use. They will have to have their herds destroyed and the milk that they would normally sell into London will not be drinkable by the uh, by the public. And I'm also concerned about the roads. The road system in Surrey is at capacity already. They are planning on sending 160 HGVs up and down the roads of Surrey to transport waste all over the county to get to Capel. I've got um, three little girls and um, I want them to, just like any other parent, grow up as healthily as possible and in the Surrey countryside. And we know that the carcinogens and the, the dust that comes out of the stack is at exactly the size, which means it goes into your lungs right into the very depths of your lungs and causes cancer and heart disease. And of course, for children, those effects are much harder to deal with. What would your advice be to other communities who are trying to mount a campaign against proposed incinerators? Well, I, I know that we're very prepared to uh, link up with any town or village that's that's got this uh, horrendous idea being imposed upon them. You have to fight it hard. Link up with uh, Capel Action Group. Get onto the website. Just just Google it, Capel Action Group. You'll find the details. And we're very happy to pass on any information that we can. Thank you very much indeed. That was Andy Carr. And we asked for a statement from the Environmental Services Association. ESA is the sectoral trade association for the United Kingdom's waste and secondary resource management industry. We help our members to recover more of the value contained in the UK's waste while protecting the environment and human health. The government has demonstrated that energy from waste is safe. From the perspective of climate change, electricity generation from residual municipal solid waste, i.e. the waste that cannot practicably be recycled, is an option the UK must develop through a range of technologies. The Institution of Civil Engineers believes our sector could, by 2020, generate 17% of the UK's electricity. David, do you think that energy from waste plants have moved on sufficiently from incinerators? I think, though, they still are incinerators, aren't they? They take the waste, they burn it. They might try and recapture some of the heat, which is a good thing, I suppose. But I don't think we can disassociate the the two. And if you believe there are problems with incinerators, then you will get the same problems with energy from waste. I think it is quite noticeable, though, that as you go around the country, generally, the incinerators do tend to be in the um, poorer parts of town. It's it's a really difficult one because I can see why people don't want them in their neighbourhood. They're bloody ugly things, um, for, for one thing, um, whether there's a health risk or not. But there's also this question of, well, 
something has to be done with this. If we're going to keep producing it, then something has to be done with it. And this probably isn't the, the, the best solution, but we have to find a solution because we can't keep sticking it in the ground. And the best solution would be just to produce a lot less. But people just seem to have this disconnect with their lifestyles and then this incinerator, which is burning everyone else's waste. It's a bit of a dull, boring message, but if we were to all produce a little bit less waste, we'd probably need fewer incinerators. I don't think it's a dull, boring message. I think it's an exciting message, and I think that's exactly <laughs> what we should be doing. Anyway, Rob, you've actually spent time on landfill because you were the eco-expert in Channel 4's dumped series in the summer. Is energy from waste the answer to the landfill crisis? It's not the answer. Incineration is just better than landfill. But clearly, with the fact we're filling up the holes in the ground with our waste means we have to reduce the amount of waste we put in the hole in the ground, means we have to reduce the amount of waste we throw away that might go to incineration. So designing out and reducing this waste, it has to be the number one starting point. But the reality is we're the third worst at recycling in Europe. But shouldn't we get better? Isn't it just giving up to say, right, we'll burn it instead? Yeah, well, what do you do with it? I mean, I, Friends of the Earth are, are do, do a great job, but there's a typical, again, contrarian view of environmentalists saying we wouldn't start from here if, if I was you. You know, you can't be somewhere else. Unless we spend hundreds of millions, maybe up to £2 billion pounds on our recycling infrastructure, structure, we are having this waste to deal with. Okay, so how much do these incinerators, these new generation incinerators cost because they're very expensive? I can't tell you how much they cost. I know that they'd be the equivalent of building, say, a gas-fired power station in terms of what they generate. And there is an argument to say they give off significantly more CO2. However, you've still got this input, which is the waste that we generate. So to say, well, don't build them because they give off more CO2. Well, what's the alternative? We put all this in a hole in the ground, which gives off methane and is a much worse situation. So I think incineration is a viable strategy. We have Sweden Denmark um, incinerating 50 up to around 50% of their waste and recycling more than us. So I think it is a viable strategy. The technologies are in place to make it cleaner. What about the emissions? Well, this is the point. An energy from waste plant is better than a coal-fired power station, but worse than a gas-fired power station. That would be in terms of CO2 emissions. But we have the waste and the byproduct to feed these incinerators, and you actually collect about 8 kilowatt hours of energy per kilo of mixed plastic. So surely it's better to recover that energy than actually put it in a hole in the ground. And that's why I believe they are a viable strategy and they have worked across Europe. So there needs to be um, a look at all the strategies and all the t- technologies out there and use the most appropriate one for the particular waste stream. And I think that's not joined up at the moment. What about the health problems associated with incineration? I mean, you wouldn't really want to live next door to one, would you? I mean, how do we get over that problem? Well, you, you say you wouldn't want to live next door to an energy from waste plant, but we live next door to hospitals who incinerate most of their waste. We live next door to crematoriums who <laughs> definitely incinerate most of their waste. So I can't see it's a massive problem in that respect. Yeah, of course, out of choice, you wouldn't live next to one. And I think they have a kind of like post-industrial architectural style, which is actually quite attractive in some ways as well. So, Oh, please. I've heard of people appeasing these techniques, but that's, you know... Well, that's just my view, and I, I think that we're sensitised to it. I think there's a lot of information out there which isn't, isn't accurate, and I think there need, needs to be a, a whole look at our waste stream, the amount of waste that's generated, what is the best option for dealing with each of these waste streams, and incineration is just one, one route. Every council seems to have a different recycling programme. Once again, there's no joined-up thinking, so we get very confused as consumers. Then we have all these carbon labelling and all this other stuff that goes on packs in stores, and we're asking consumers to be sort of ersatz environmentalists to make judgments about what's good and what's bad. And I think the government needs to take a much stronger role in actually funding the recycling infrastructure, making sure we invest in it properly and giving good information to consumers across the whole country rather than having this hodgepodge of kind of like different messages coming Well, we all think that, but I want to know how recycling can tie in with incineration. I want to know why you think the two will be compatible in any way, because as far as I can see, it undermines recycling. 
recycling relies on yield. So, I mean, you, you basically, if you get enough yield up of a particular material, you can then do something with it because it has commercial value. The way we deal with our waste in the UK means it has very low yield, hence it ends up in a big mass that um, incineration is a viable route. You've got also mechanical biological treatment plants that do actually separate some of the metals and plastics before they go through a process and treatment. So there are other technologies which do actually help facilitate recycling. But it's true, if you build an energy from waste plant, you're not going to commit tens of millions of pounds worth of cash and then let the feedstock dry up. So you are encouraging incineration for 20, 30, 40 year period. And isn't by it really just things. sending a message to us all, don't worry, we'll just burn it? I don't think it is because the infrastructure in the UK is so far behind what the rest of Europe and Denmark and Sweden have very high incineration rates, somewhere in the region of 50%, and they also recycle a significant amount. So if it's done properly, the scrubbing technologies are there to keep keep it as clean as possible, I think is a viable source of energy. But also, I must say that the 19 plants, only four of them, as I know, about of combined heat and power. Most of them just generate electricity and not heat. So again, if we are going to install um, incinerators, they have to be combined heat and power plants as well so we get the most from the waste that we're incinerating. So that, again, is something that should be considered. I'm Lucy Siegel. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we visit Britain's first fully-fledged eco-store. Eight suburban streets have gone into battle to see which can save the most energy in the coming year. Draft excluders, insulation and low-energy light bulbs at the ready. From Edinburgh to Plymouth, the race is on. The Guardian's Martin Wainwright went to find out more. I'm in Green Lane in Cookridge, which is a suburb of Leeds. And Green Lane is one of eight streets all over the country uh, where the starting gun has gone off for a, a national competition in which each of these streets, all of which have the name Green in their title, we've got a Green Lane, a Green Street, somewhere called The Green. They're all competing to see how much energy they can save in the course of a year. And eight households have been chosen here in Green Lane. And I'm in one of them, which belongs to Jeff and Ros Fawcett. Jeff, would you mind telling me the first you heard about this and, and how it came about? Well, I got a letter from the Green Streets campaign, British Gas, uh, invited me to participate. And one of the key things about it was an energy audit with the possibility of the installation of all sorts of energy-saving devices. An energy audit? I mean, that sounds... Ros, how did you feel about people coming in and, you know, checking out your house and whether you've got draft excluders and roof insulation and all that sort of thing? Very pleased, actually, because we needed a push, if you like, in the right direction for us to get off our backsides and uh, do something about energy saving, which we'd been thinking about for a long time but not done anything about. So it was a good idea, I think. What sort of things did the advisors come up with? Cavity wall insulation to prevent energy loss. A new boiler, which was important because our old one, well, it was about 17 years old and we were aware that it wasn't in top class condition. So those were two things right away. And then a simple things like energy saving light bulbs, which are now in place really right throughout the house. And of course, we are being now very proactive in changing our habits for energy conservation. And of course, the cavity wall insulation means that now when we get up in the morning, the house has retained the heat. We find quite a difference. It engages your mind a bit more. You realise that there are efforts that everybody in every household can make. One other thing. Come with me. <laughs> Thanks. This is an energy monitor. This is like an, an LED screen with a lot of numbers on it. Yes, and basically it is telling us just how much energy we're using second by second, oh, minute yeah. by minute, and putting figures in terms of pounds and pence 
into our energy use at any one time. Lovely. Well, you've got some big cheeses coming to see you, haven't you? Hilary, Ben, yes. and the head of British Gas. <laughs> they want a cup of tea, they'll get one. <laughs> Good. While, while you're making their cup of tea, you can watch your energy monitor, see how much they're costing you. Well, our, our distinguished guests who we were discussing earlier with Ros and Jeff have arrived. First of all, Hilary Ben, Secretary of State for the Environment. Could you just tell me what you think about this, this competition? I think it's great because we know we've got to significantly reduce our energy uses and our uh, greenhouse gas and carbon emissions. And it's about how we get on with it now. And the great thing about this project, eight houses in eight streets in eight cities, is showing us what can be done involving people getting the residents here talking to each other about it. And you watch those figures come down and that's the task over the next you know, year, five years, 50 years. We've got to get down from where we are to where we need to be. So it gets all of us to think about the way in which we use energy how we can save it and we need that because 40% of the emissions in this country are down to the choices you and I make as individuals 28% comes from you know houses from the domestic sector so we've all got to play a part and why I think this project is so good is it's showing practically how you can do it it's involving people and in the end it's got to be a partnership between the energy companies individuals and governments and it's about getting on and making it happen because people look at climate change and may say gosh this is so big and difficult you get awed by the size of it but in the end we're very resourceful practical human beings and we can see the damage that we're doing to the planet and we recognize we have to do something about it just last question have you, have you got one of the, or are you going to get one of these things or have you got one i have got one in a box at home on the kitchen table <laughs> which when i get a moment i'm going to plug on and have a look so there's simple steps that we can take i suppose i'm like lots of people i've got some low energy light bulbs i could do some more i went into the basement shortly after i got this job and turned the thermostat down by a couple of degrees all these little things if millions Millions of us do it has an impact. And that's the message. We can do it, but we've all got to play our part. That was Martin Wainwright reporting. The rise of the ethical consumer has, until recently, largely involved the internet, but retail outlets are beginning to open. This week, the glossies were full of Mr and Mrs Firth's shop in Chiswick, West London, Eco Age. Yes, that's as in Colin Firth, the actor. We went to see what all the fuss was about. I'm in Eco Age, which is the new eco lifestyle shop on Chiswick High Road in London, and I am with... Livia Firth. Ivo Coulson. Nicola Giugioli. And the team that have put together this shop. Now, you're a film producer. Your husband is Colin Firth, the actor. What's this eco-retail about? How did you get into this? Colin and I have always been interested in the subject, of course, because it's a question of responsibility and respect, and you cannot not be interested in the issue today. And so we started to learn from Nicola and then becoming more and more obsessed. And when Nicola has this idea, we thought, well, it's actually, apart from a fantastic, responsible idea, is also probably a very good commercial business to start to launch into. And so uh, Nicola came back from Italy with two investors and he needed more. And so Colin and I decided to invest in the project and then went to Ivo Colson, who is our neighbour and friend, also business partner in the movie that I produced. And he decided that it was a good idea too. And so he came into the adventure as well. OK, Ivo, how did it attract you as a commercial proposition? One of the nucleuses of the business is having a consultancy as well. And that was another interesting idea from the proposition at the outset is that, yes, it's a retail outlet, but also we've got this consultancy business, which 
on its own could stand as a separate business if we wanted it to. And it covers everything from uh, commercial companies who may want to green their businesses through to residences and private individuals who might want to do the same, to design and interior design, which are all fantastic areas to, to be involved in. So, Nicola, you have chosen the type of solar panels, for example, that you're going to sell. Can you just give me a rundown of the products, the technical gadgets that you've got and why you've chosen them? Okay, so starting from the renewables system, the choice went for the more integratable in the architecture because as we know London is mainly listed areas so there are a lot of problems of installation so we went for transparent solar panels, solar shingles, solar tiles. On wind turbines issue we try to choose the most beautiful one which is this quiet revolution which is really effective and um, little gadgets we have been trying thousands of them and let's say 80% were really as we got crap (laughs) they didn't really work that was the problem so we choose the product that even if a bit more expensive they actually are good alternatives to the other products. So Livia we're in a relatively affluent part of London here what kind of solutions do you have at EcoAge for other socio-economic brackets not so well off? For a start, there is a variety in the shop in terms of prices and what people can afford. But also in our consultancy service, what we're doing is we're going to people's houses and the first thing that we tell them is, let us come to your house and don't worry, even if you have no money at all, we can still tell you the little things that you can do to make it more efficient or greener and to change your way of living. It's a bit like the trend in organic food. When it started, organic food was for very rich people and seen as something unapproved approachable by the other classes and so hopefully the trend in the eco will be the same which we are starting at a highland market because we have to but then if the demand becomes wider and bigger then it will expand to everybody else okay so we're sitting here surrounded by beautiful things lamps and bamboo wood computers and very stylish chairs and there's a washing machine behind you can you explain that nicola this is the lg steam direct so you wash with steam instead of water it's a new technology and is exactly for me the example of how a new product can be both stylish, eco-friendly and affordable. And EcoAge is now open for business. Rob, will you be shopping there? Would I like to shop at Colin Firth's new shop? Uh, good question. Um, from what I've seen in the newspapers, it looks like an admirable venture, but um, there's nothing potentially interesting or potentially environmentally good about what they're selling from what I've seen. So I'd like to go and see it and, and judge for myself. But tin can elephants ain't going to save the planet and arguably they should just be recycled because they look bloody awful as well. That's one view. David, <laughs> will, will, will they be getting your ethical consumer pound? I, I, I have a little bit of a problem with the whole ethical consumer idea, actually. I, I just don't think that it, they're too compatible. I don't think we can shop our way out of this problem. I think the solution is to buy less of everything. You don't need this shit, so don't buy you know you don't need any kind of elephant ornament so whether it's made of tin cans or ivory just leave them both on the shelf and uh, hopefully people will stop making them isn't there something to be said for having a little bit of joy in your life with some of these elephants or whatever they they happen to be if you get the joy in your life from a tin can elephant then i suppose there is but hopefully there's more to life than buying stuff to make ourselves feel fulfilled i should say for balance that there's a lot more than elephants in in the shop that we visited well well, i've got a strong view you can't um, not acknowledge the anthropology and, and why we buy things we buy things for status ritual and mimicry we want to have things around us that's we're never going to change as human beings but to 
would dress this up as some kind of eco-venture and ethical living, that is where there might be a contentious point. Well, as someone who makes their living from uh, writing about ethical living, I think that surely if we can consume lower impact products that have been made in an equitable and fair way, surely that's a positive thing. You're going to buy something, so make sure that's what people are buying. Well, absolutely. If you are going to buy a, a Bentley, then make sure it's um, m- m- as efficient as possible. Sure, if you are going to have a huge home, make sure it's as efficient as possible. You can't deny people these things, and nor should we try. But then if you're going to set something up which is about knickknacks, which have got some kind of ethical being or some kind of like, let's go back to that bloody awful elephant, you know, that's made from folded aluminium cans. This ain't ethical living. And if I was managing the PR for a store that was about being sound in environmental terms, they ain't the sort of things that I'd be promoting because it's trivia and it's, it's nonsense. So it's actually arguably greenwashing. And one final question for our non-Guardian guest today. Rob, what are you most looking forward to in the month of April? The number one thing I'm looking forward to in April is being an expert judge on the Observer Ethical Awards judging panel. Correct answer. On that note, there's still some time to get your entries and nominations in. Go to www.observer.co.uk forward slash ethical awards. was Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guests David Adam and Rob Holdway and to my producer Ian Chambers. I'm Lucy Siegel. Thank you for listening. The Guardian.